an economically depressed community rallies its hope and faith around a racehorse. Are you just watching episode 117, Dream Horse? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And today we're getting off of, once again, off of our superhero and sci-fi kick. For now. (laughs) Yeah. 90% of our movies tend to fit somewhat in those genres, but we like to occasionally do something completely off the beaten path. Yeah. And this movie, I believe, is completely off the beaten path. There's a lot of people who have never even heard of it, so we hope that... (laughs) Our listeners are willing to listen to our discussion on this somewhat obscure movie that came out in the end of May. The movie is a true story, well, a dramatized true story, Hmm. about a racehorse that was bred and ran in Wales and did fairly well. And he was owned and bred by people in a small village. And they were not like rich people, and they raised him on an allotment. And it became a great story because he did well as a racehorse. So, hey, I just ruined the movie, didn't I? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's historically accurate, so we'll say no spoilers are out. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like saying the Nazis lost World War II. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about this is that when I saw the previews for the movie, I was like, this has a lot of interesting themes in it for us to discuss. But I went ahead and researched it before I went to see the movie. So there was nothing that happened in the movie that was a surprise because I went ahead and like looked up the big race that he won and, you Hmm. know, did a little bit of of research before I even went to see the movie. So I, you know, I'd already spoiled the movie before I went to see it. (laughs) I didn't know anything going in. I was curious to see how accurate it would would be. And I also didn't want to be disappointed to find out, you know, something like horrible tragedy had happened to the horse. And I didn't (laughs) want to go to see a sad movie. So I also didn't know whether or not that would happen. Ah, so you were surprised. I was pleased. (laughs) You were pleased. Yes. So what we're talking about is that there is a scene in the movie where the horse is injured and you're wondering, you know, whether they're going to put him down on the track or not. And and they did a good job with that. Mm -hmm. They they really, I guess, led the audience along, making Mm -hmm. you think that it could go either way. Right. Right. And uh, it. There is also, this is a theatrical release that is dramatizing the true story. There was also a theatrical documentary done soon after all of the events uh, in this horse's life. It came out and it was called Dark Horse, The Incredible True Story of Dream Alliance. And it's Mm -hmm. an interesting documentary. I actually found a copy of it in my library and was able to watch it before we record. So I have some of the as true as they were willing to admit in a documentary anyway, course of events from the documentary (laughs) to, to put side by side with the movie as we discuss it. So the music for dream horse was done by Benjamin Woodgates. And I would say as the type of movie it is, the music fit well, it was upbeat and happy where you needed upbeat and happy. And it was tense and, when you needed tents, and so it worked as a as background to inflate the mood of whatever scene was in the movie. I think the music also fed to the Welsh flavor very well, mm-hmm. including the couple scenes where they're singing, where the cast is all singing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, definitely. And I think this is going to be a movie where I'll have to check out uh, either streaming or a DVD or something when it comes out. So that I can watch it with subtitles because there were a lot of uh, Welsh kind of accents to the way people spoke. And even more so in the documentary, which thankfully I did have as a DVD so I could turn on the subtitles and see exactly what they were saying. Because sometimes, you know, just the Welsh accent, the way they would phrase things, it just was like, what did you just say? So I'd have to look it up. and So, yeah, just be warned. <laughs> this is a very backwoods Welsh what? village. <laughs> I got to admit, I I have to turn on subtitles for, like, the Father Brown mysteries. So (laughs) I was hurting a little bit in the theater. Yeah. 
So, well, before we get too much away from the music, let me play a little bit of it here so you can hear it. Before we delve into our thematic discussion, we can just, I guess, talk for just a little bit about the things we liked and disliked about the movie. I do want to say the movie was PG. From the standpoint of, I guess, the world's values, the world's views, this movie was quite clean. But from a Christian standpoint, there were some things in it that might give the average family a little bit of pause. Some of it was... Some of the story took place in a pub or a local Mm. bar, which in small villages tend to be like the meeting place of a lot of people and families will go in. But in actuality, it is a bar. So there's people drinking. There's men being men. (laughs) (laughs) Welsh wind. Yeah. Well, there's also some drinking, there's some swearing, and there's a lot of gambling because it is horse racing. And Mm. The whole point of horse racing is to gamble. It's sort of hard to do a horse racing movie without including the gambling aspect. Right. Right. So those are some some downsides to this movie. If you're thinking about watching it as a family, just beware that there is drinking, swearing, and and gambling in the movie. So it is. Wasn't a lot of swearing. No, and I I remember. The swearing was mostly couched in kind of Welsh swear words, so I think a mm. lot of it cleared the censors because it was <laughs> it wasn't like American swearing. <laughs> I always wondered if this the British censors treat British swearing differently. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I think they do because certain words based on what English culture you're in are worse than in other cultures. So I think the the F word doesn't count as bad in British stuff as it does in American stuff. So you'll end up hearing that word a lot more often in British television and British movies. And they're a little more careful with its usage in order to meet the ratings here in the States. So I do believe there Mm. are a difference in in the way they view certain words and swear words are different in different cultures. Cause I know bloody that word is a, just a standard descriptive word here in the States. But if you're in, UK or Australia, it's actually a swear word. Yeah, it really depends on the context, right? But yeah, I would imagine censors, it has to because otherwise they'd be yeah. losing some really good words. Because <laughs> <laughs> if we're talking murder mystery, bloody has one. <laughs> yeah, I would hope. Knives out, I, bloody. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so. That's really all I have to say about the movie before we get into thematic discussion. I did enjoy it. I thought it was a well-made yeah. movie. I thought they did a very good job with the casting. At the very mm-hmm. end of the movie, they put the actors next to the actual people during the credits. I liked I liked that bit. Yeah, and that, you were actually able to see how well they casted them and for some of the characters some of they them did were a, really well. Really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The actor who played uh, Daisy I mean, they could you have could been barely brothers. tell them apart. They could have been brothers, yeah. <laughs> and and really, to be honest, the actress that played Janet, were, they were very similar yeah. too. Kayla and I saw it together, and uh, we both came. We both liked the movie. We came out of the theater with that, you know, that good feeling of satisfaction after you've had a really good meal or something like that. That's sort of mm-hmm. the way it was after finishing the movie. Yeah. It ran the course exactly as it should have, and you came out feeling exactly the way that you want to feel. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed as I, because I didn't do any of the research until after, uh, mm-hmm. after we saw the movie. I was really impressed with how true they stayed to it. Now, it, there a lot of things were changed. The big one for me was that the time frame was sort of crunched together a little bit. Yeah, they skipped a lot of his races in the movie. Yeah. They they made it look like he didn't run nearly as often as he actually did. But I think that part of that was just kind of 
trying to skim over. And I think they kind of implied that there were more races in there than they showed. I don't think they were trying to necessarily leave stuff out. But if mm-hmm. you weren't paying close attention, you know, you kind of missed that, you know, they kind of did it as laying out like newspapers saying he ran in this, he ran in this, and he won this, and he was, you know, so they didn't actually show all the races, but he, yeah, he had. Yeah. You know, with so many of these movies based on true events, mm-hmm. you, you come out of it feeling that the word based is very loosely used. Yeah, yeah. But this one, I feel like they hit all the important parts and the stuff that they did change, many which I didn't, you know, I didn't even know about until you and I started talking prep for this uh, recording. The changes that they did make, I, I thought were valid changes to help deliver what needed to be delivered. Yeah, I think they they were framing the true story in a way that made it a well-plotted and themed themed story. So yeah. instead of having, you know, in true life, nothing happens like a story. You know, that there's no neat beginning and neat end. It's just life. Mm-hmm. And yeah. <laughs> they were taking something that was a true story and they were framing it in a way that made it a complete story with a good ending, a good middle, a good climax, and then an end. Mm-hmm. So I think they rearranged some things and they, you know, tweaked some of the arrangements of certain you know, life choices that some of the characters made and that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. They tweaked them so that they all fit with underneath the umbrella of the story of Dream Alliance. And I think that in the end, it made the movie good because then you had the complete story all neatly wrapped up into something that that you walk out of the theater feeling, you know, happy about and satisfied, like you said. You know, when it comes to the background characters, the the other – the um, other members of the syndicate it's in the movie, they only showed about uh, eight mem- eight other members of the syndicate. But in reality, like I think there were 30, 20 yeah. something. Yeah, right? I think it was 30. So it's in a lot of uh, based on true events movies, they, they do composite characters. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how many of the eight or so in the movie were actually real people. <laughs> Uh-huh. In the events of Dream Alliance's uh, run on the circuit, but they were very humorous <laughs> and <laughs> they felt Welsh country. We're a fan in our house of uh, Masterpiece Theater, uh, British stuff. All Creatures Great and Small is a, a series that started last year based on the Harriet novels that uh, that we've really enjoyed. And they they do a, a good job with that too, where they really help establish the flavor with the stereotypical characters, but they feel right, and they did that with Dream Horse too. Yeah, and I and to be honest, having watched the documentary, I think that the majority of the characters that they showed from the syndicate were representing real people, and a lot of those people were ones that were openly interviewed in Dark Horse, the documentary. Hmm. So I think what they did was they took the the people who had actually been willing to talk about the experience in the documentary and, and made them characters in the movie. So they That's didn't cool. talk to all of the syndicate members in the documentary, but the ones that they did were represented by characters in the hmm. movie. So like Kirby and Margaret and, and some of the others. Yeah. <laughs> the truck driver was a particular interest to me because there's a hint dropped. I want to say early in the movie that he may use his truck for less than honest purposes. (laughs) He says, and it's completely non nefarious or something like that, which I thought made for an interesting note, you know, something I wanted to get back to. I I liked the background characters and I liked the way that the movie plays just the right chords, emotional chords, to really lift the audience where it needs to be lifted and and sort of make you worry when worry is needed. It's they they did a really good job, particularly given the fact that, you know, some people go in knowing the true story behind what's going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought it was a well done movie, just out and out well done. Well, you know, we all, as as an audience, we all prefer underdog movies. And this is yeah. 
this is another underdog. And I think that that was why Dream Alliance became so, so big. What after he won the Welsh National, the, in the documentary, they tell the story that after he won the race, you know, he come back from the serious injury and he run, wins his, the second race out after his injury. And they all went to a local pub, to a pub that was local to the racetrack. And they didn't realize when they went into party that none of them had good cell reception inside the pub where they were. And so they, they partied for several hours. And when they came out of the pub, their phones all started lighting up with people <laughs> trying to call them. You know, did you know that it's made na- international news and, you know, everybody wants interviews and they turned into like overnight superstars. In fact, uh, Jan said that she'd go to work at the co-op and and uh, people would come into the store and clap whenever she walked by cleaning floors. So she she's like she's she's even entertained getting a burqa so that she could go out in public without people recognizing her. So. I just thought that was, you know, interesting that, you know, the actual syndicate got suddenly famous overnight because of the actions of this one horse. And, and, and it's the reason it happened is because people really do love underdogs. It was not this horses win races all the time, but what was so spectacular was this specific horse, his specific background and the specific people who owned him. Yeah. And that was what made it such an amazing story. And so, yeah, I mean, people love underdogs. Yeah. And I will continue to like underdogs, even (laughs) though, for the record, Dream Alliance was not a dog. He was a horse. (laughs) Just in case anybody got confused. Yes. Yes. But that was kind of one of the main themes of the movie that they kind of reiterated over and over again was the fact that horse racing is a rich man's sport. And I know this just, you know, because I was involved with horses when I was in high school and you can't own a horse without having the money to maintain them. They're very expensive animals to keep. And horse racing is even worse because not only do you have just the standard cost of keeping a horse, you know, feeding them and taking care of their medical needs and shoeing them and, Mm. you know, stabling them. and, And then, you know, horses are actually kind of fragile creatures as well. They can just eat a little bit too much grass one night and colic in the field and and all of your investment's gone. And it's something that most racehorse owners, you know, they they have the money. You know, they've got these big productive Mm -hmm. farms and they're usually independently wealthy and they're they're doing it as a hobby. And to have somebody decide, you know, I hey, I'm living in this village that's economically depressed and I've, I'm going to breed a racehorse and make a go at it. And that's uh, the kind of the, the story that keeps going over and over again is how out of the norm it was for somebody to even consider doing that. And I know that syndicates do happen quite a bit. Uh, I think that there is uh, quite a few syndicates like here in the States that you can actually, you know, put your, a little bit of money in on and join a horse racing syndicate. So it's not something that is rare, but at the same time, I guess the more people who own a horse, the less money you make when they win, if they win. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) More ways to split it. Yeah. So the first theme that I kind of want to delve into and talking about this movie, and I, and I think it's one they set up really well in the framing of the movie is just Mm -hmm. the monotony of, living. And the first time you see Jan in the movie, she is working in a co-op. She's just doing the same thing every day. And they've just really reiterate the, just the monotony of her life. She goes to work and she sits there and, you know, she works at a grocery store and it's just the, I've never worked at a grocery store, but I can see how monotonous that job would get. Just (laughs) customer after customer, you know, just ringing up their stuff and, Get, taking the money and giving change yeah. and then ringing up the next one. And it's, it's like the very picture of monotony. <laughs> and, you know, in the movie, they show her walking to work. And mm-hmm. at, at one point or at multiple points, they show her walking by this one particular bit of graffiti that I think really helps set the flavor as well, where it says it can't be that bad. The pigeons keep coming back. <laughs> 
So it it's you know it it really does set that sense of not quite depression, but monotony. I guess is is as close as yeah, sort of depressing monotony. Yeah, she's just gone numb. It's like her life mm-hmm. has no nothing to look forward to. It's just like she just and and it, it kind of even starts out with her in bed with her husband snoring and she's staring at the you know just staring at the ceiling until the, the alarm clock goes off and and I know that I have been there you know where I let my day to day just purpose and living just kind of numb you to the point where you're just not really doing anything with purpose anymore yeah. it's like you're just it's just I've been here I've done this and I'm going to be here and I'm going to do it again and I'm going to be here and do it again and it's just so mind numbing and that is reiterated so many times in this movie, but of course I walk out knowing one of my favorite books of the Bible. I walk out of the movie <laughs> thinking of Ecclesiastes and I actually ended up mining quite a few verses from Ecclesiastes, but I'm going to only read two of them. The first one is Ecclesiastes 2.11. When I considered all that I'd accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's the depressing part of Ecclesiastes. And then you get to the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, which is Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And your response to go is, that's not depressing? I'm like, it isn't in that Everything, even in the mind-numbing monotony of our everyday lives, everything has a purpose under God. So as Christians, especially when we're looking at that daily grind, that adulting that we all joke Mm -hmm. about, you know, paying the bills and (laughs) doing the laundry and fixing the meals and, you know, just clogging the the sink, mowing the grass. (laughs) Yeah. It all adds up to this, you know, the, the daily things that we just do to live and, and we just kind of lose our sense of purpose in. But as Christians, we should always be remembering that there is more to life than that daily grind. In Philippians 2, 1 through 5, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And then a little further on, that was one through five. And then in verse 13, it says, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So that's how it's different. Or at least that's how it should be different for Christians who are living this daily monotony. Yeah, it's you had uh, a couple quotes from the movie that drove home that feeling of useless monotony where Jan says, I I need something to look forward to when I get up in the morning to remind me that things can change. Monotony is all about the same thing uh, day in and day out, but mm-hmm. sometimes it can get a little monotonous with change too. Mm. But what she was looking for was engaging change. And I don't know how you know it, it was actually shown in Dark Horse, but in the movie, it made it look like her decision to pursue this was almost on a whim from overhearing Howard talk about his previous experience with the syndicate. Mm-hmm. But it's something that could have been foolish if it had gone poorly. <laughs> right. And I think that maybe that's kind of part of the story. I mean, she she bred the horse. There was a line... Since I've seen them both, I kind of get them mixed up. I think it was actually in the documentary where she said that, you know, that she and Dream had a a pact, you know, that he would go out and he'd do his best. And when it was done, he'd come home. It's like sending your kids off to college. You know, you you send them off and you hope they do their best. And and eventually, or not college, I think she said boarding school. Eventually they come home and, (laughs) 
you know, they did what they did and then they come home and they get to, you know, be one of the family again. And so I, I don't think she ever really went into this thinking, I'm just breeding a racehorse to make money. That was never the purpose. It was just yeah. to have something outside of the monotony of her life to look forward to. It was engaging. Yeah. Investing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, when when they did get the syndicate together, Howard was the kind of the one who had been involved in a syndicate before and knew about horse racing to some extent. And he actually told the group, he's like, don't do this about money. This is not about yeah. money. You want to do it for, and he used a Welsh term that we had a lot of fun with, the Hoyle, I think is how it's pronounced. It's actually spelled H-W-Y-L. Gotta love the Welsh. They don't like vowels. <laughs> so in the movie, it's defined as a feeling of emotional motivation and energy. So even though these are economically depressed people who, for some of them, don't have enough money to you know necessarily put good food on the table for their families, mm -hmm. and they're, they're putting a tenner a week down on a racehorse. Some of them may not have really been able to afford that tenner a week. Yeah, it wasn't it. Uh, the town was a um, a coal mining town, and the, the mine closed, right? Yeah, uh, from the documentary, they said that it was multiple mines in the area, and it was actually, I think, in the documentary, the Kirby, one of the mem members of the syndicate, kind of gave a the background of that, and he he was saying that. For a long time, you know, everybody went and worked in the coal industry and the conditions were very poor. And so eventually all of the mine workers got together and tried to unionize in order to force the the coal mines to give them better working conditions. And soon after that happened, a lot of the mines just started closing. Another instance of where they couldn't afford to make the concessions they had to make in order to keep their workers. And so they yeah. just ended up closing the mines. And so most of the businesses in these towns were supported by the coal industry. You either worked in the pit or you worked in a business that was supported by the pit. And so they were all in really poor shape when the coal mines started closing one right after another. And so they didn't have any industry to replace it once the coal mines were gone. So yeah. a lot of these people were just living very subsistence lives. That was the way it was for me growing up because my dad was a manager in paper companies. Mm -hmm. And where we lived in Vicksburg, Michigan, it was always, you know, much of the town was built around the paper mill. Right. Although it was a, a little more diverse because, you know, it was uh, very close to Kalamazoo, Michigan. So uh, Kalamazoo had some larger industries as well. Prab Robotics, I think, uh, had a, a big plant there. But, you know, you went to school with paper company kids. You, uh, mm -hmm. Everybody went to the company picnic. <laughs> right. And I think that that's true of a certain generation of even here in the States, you know, a lot of towns just grew up around a industry, mm -hmm. you know, they, they grew up around a factory or a mill. Yeah. And I think that to be honest, that's what happened to D Detroit, Michigan. It grew up around the auto industry and then the auto mm -hmm. factories closed or moved and, and the whole city just dried up, you know, and, People abandoned their homes and went somewhere else. And it's cities had to diversify. Yeah, it's an industrial revolution thing. It's like there was a period of time during the industrial revolution where these towns would grow around an industry and then the industry faded or was made no longer useful by, mm -hmm. you know, just the computerized era, you know, put a lot of industry out of business. And yeah. because of that, economies have had to evolve, <laughs> use that yeah, word, yeah. or grow, change in order to continue to meet the, the demand for labor that, you know, people needed to work. And so they had to find new, new venues to work in because, mm -hmm. and, and I think the States, you know, we used to be a heavily industrial country and now we're more of a service oriented country because industry just has kind of faded. And, uh, and I think that that, that hurt a lot of these little, uh, little villages, because that's kind of, unless they're agricultural, uh, they're usually grew up around some particular industry. So it is sad. Yeah. 
But back to the story of the Hoyle. <laughs> <laughs> I was intrigued by the do it for the Hoyle. I actually uh, underlined it in my handwritten notes, or I, I started it and, and bolded it when I typed my notes out. Mm-hmm. Because part of Howard's storyline in, in the movie was that he had come out of a bad experience with the syndicate where he spent his kid's college fund, but he lost a bunch of money. And he almost lost their house. Yeah. And it put a very serious strain, uh, as shown in the movie, on his marriage and his home life. And in Dream Horse, they made it so that Howard kept the fact that he joined another syndicate from his wife until after he had gone to a couple couple races, I think. Yeah. And she discovered it, and there was a uh, a big dramatic moment. She discovered his owner's tag that he left yeah. accidentally dropped yeah. in the house. Yeah. So when they had him say, one thing I must stress above all else, if you do join, don't do it expecting to make money. So do it for the Hoyle. That's what this is all about. And I thought that was interesting coming from his character. Right. The character who, you know, had lost so much of that. Well, and I think that it's interesting because then when you go to the documentary to kind of see, you know, how accurate all of that syndicate meeting was, there were two things that came out of the documentary that were somewhat different from the movie. One, it did not appear that Howard was keeping anything from his wife, though they did argue about it because she was one of the people that was interviewed for the documentary. And she made the comment that, you know, Howard came to me and told me this barmaid was asking about starting a syndicate. And he said that it would be different this time. They weren't in it for the money. That was going to be a small financial commitment. They weren't going to let it, you know, get out of proportion. And, and she was like, it better be different. You know, she, she was going to put her foot down. And then it, it sounded like, you know, that she was a, a little bit withdrawn until Dream Alliance won his first race. And then she got excited. And then she was going to the races with him and, and being part of the syndicate. So that that was kind of a really big difference. The other difference was that that Howard was already kind of independent. At that point in the movie, they made it look like that he just up and quit his job. Oh, yeah. And he even had the big quit scene at the office where he got mm -hmm. fed up. Right. And part of that was goes back to our previous theme of monotony. He was just sick and tired of the of not only the monotony of his job, but he felt like they were being dishonest and in helping the rich and not the poor. And yeah. And and he did say there was in in real life, there was a little bit of that. He'd been uh I think in his second decade in corporate accounting and, and he just, he wanted to try it on his own. And part of what had gotten him messed up in the previous one was that he was, it wasn't just the financial commitment, but he was betting on the races as well. And so you had to be, you know, careful when you bet on races. Mm -hmm. so a lot of people lose a lot of money betting on the, betting on the ponies. Yeah. The do it for the Hoyle comment and and uh the impact that it had on the characters around it it got me wondering is it okay is it okay to do something for, for the for the the feeling of emotional motivation and energy alone mm -hmm. um you know we we read books that we want to read we uh we play games that we want to play we go to a restaurant that we've always wanted to try stuff like that but is it all right and and i think I come down on the side that, yeah, it is okay, but you can't forget where it comes from. Yeah. One of my favorite verses, and I, I'm sure I've mentioned it before here on the podcast. I've got it on the wall in my, in my office at work, Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward from an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. And that one's always been important to me, and it, it's one that I I tend to forget about the most often, despite mm -hmm. it being such a, an important verse. Because, you know, you get into that monotony, and you leave the sentiment of Colossians 3, 23 and 24 behind. Right. 
when you're getting up in the morning, you're going to work at the co-op and you don't have a faith in a creator who, who is infinite compared to the scope of the universe. It's easy. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's easy to get dragged down in that monotony so much easier than it is even for us Christians who, who have professed faith in Christ and depend on him for forgiveness of sins. I think that's why the midlife crisis is such a trope. You know, the, you hit a certain age and you realize I've already been here. I've done this. I'm so sick of it. I want to yeah. go out and blow some money on a new car or in this case, where's buy my a convertible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hoyle got me, that line also got me thinking about the other side, which goes back to another one of your favorite books, which I'm, has grown on me too, <laughs> though it, it has the most to say where you really have to work it out when in comparison to the rest of scripture. James chapter four, verses one through three, where he, he's saying, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend on your pleasures. So that's like the other side for me of this do it for the Hoyle statement. Mm -hmm. Right. It's selfishness. Yeah, exactly. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. It right. it all comes back to idolatry, which is a handy recurring theme for us. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it even goes back to, you know, the, the scripture that I just read earlier mm -hmm. about, you know, going through the daily grind, you know, it says, adopt this attitude of don't, don't do things out of selfish ambition. Think of others more as more than yourself. So if you're doing it for the pleasure, for the, the hoil, then you're thinking of what you get out of it, not what other people get out of it. So it is yeah. selfishness. Yeah. So that I thought do it for the Hoyle was a particularly profound five word <laughs> phrase from the movie. Well, you know, it was presented as something very positive, you know, that these people are, are doing it for the sense of community to pull together, to unify, to, you know, do something positive in their lives outside of, you know, just the monotony that they were doing. But yeah. when you examine the actual motives, you begin to question whether or not that was a really a good motive to do it. Mm -hmm. And and it's hard because it, the final thing that I want to talk about, and we're going to deal with one other theme before we get to it, but I think it's important to, you know, catch this in, in a, you know, the Christian light of, how do we break free of the monotony? Do we do the midlife crisis thing where you go buy the new car or you buy a race? Go bungee jumping. Go bungee jumping or whatever <laughs> it is. How do you break the monotony without falling into the trap of the worldly fleshly pleasure that yeah. satisfies self? How do you do that? Because we as Christians – have a different perspective or we should have a different perspective on life and the purpose of life and, and serving God. And when we, we reach those crises, you know, where we just feel like we've been there, we've done that. We're so sick of it. Where are we turning to correct that attitude? Yeah. Because we've all been there. I mean, let's, let's be honest. <laughs> we all reach that point. You can't let that midlife crisis infect your believing life either. It, mm -hmm. I'm curious if mission organizations like Mission to the World, if they have to screen out people who want to become missionaries because they're having, you know, a midlife crisis or they, they want to break out of the monotony. I would imagine that the training to become a missionary probably weeds them out. Yeah, probably, yeah good point. <laughs> If not that, then the fundraising, because I yeah. know that is, oh, that is a uh, a very challenging series of actions too. Usually, have to commit to at least a year, it's six months to a year, if not more, 
of prep work before you ever hit the mission field. And I would imagine oh, yeah. that would weed out the people who are doing it on a on an emotional high. Yeah, you can you can go buy your convertible in a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe two if you do a lot of test drives, but uh, uh. not so much if you want to become a, a missionary in sub-Saharan Africa. <laughs> the last thing that I specifically wanted to talk about was it's probably not a trope, but it's something that I see in lots of movies and television shows. And it was particularly prevalent in dream horse that I think is sort of foolish. And I'm referring to it as Jan of the indomitable will. And uh, Jan of course is the co-op worker and barmaid who starts the syndicate. And uh, several times during the movie, uh, Dream Alliance's performance almost seems to hinge on Jan's force of will. Dream Alliance is doing fine, not great, but, you know, doing okay. Uh, then the screen cuts to a close-up of, of Jan's face, and it's clear she's intensely focusing on the horse, like a laser beam from her forehead to the horse's forehead. Uh, then you hear her say something like, go on, dreamy boy, and then... Out of nowhere, Dream Alliance starts this uh, remarkable burst of fantastic power. And, uh, it, you know, you, you see this kind of thing in movies a lot, especially when it's when it's racing or something like that. It, I, I want to say we saw it in Ford versus Ferrari, which is one of my favorite movies. The, the pit crew is like mentally encouraging the, the driver to do the right thing and stuff like that. And for me, this sort of ties back to this Hollywood bunk that they hand down to you about you can do anything. If you want to if you want it enough, you can do it and follow your heart because you know that's right. Your your heart won't lead you astray. But that's all just <laughs> that's not the way anything works. We get what we get and we don't get what we don't get because of the will of God. Yeah. I think it's like, what is it? Matthew uh, uh, six, I think it is where, you know, Jesus says, you know, the sun rises on the saved and the unsaved alike, you know, that we all live yeah. in the same world. If we all got what we wanted, it would be make horse racing very difficult because <laughs> I can guarantee <laughs> you that every, win. yeah, every horse or horse owner up in those stands is going, win, win, win for their own horse. <laughs> it says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is in Ephesians 5.17. And that really is what it's about. And you know, when Dream Alliance won those races, it wasn't even because Dream Alliance was the best horse as much as it was because it was God's will that Dream Alliance would do this. And and God's will spans every effect of that, mm -hmm. even all the way up to and including you and I going to see this movie and talking about it right now. And maybe it's possible that our discussion of this will help weed the – the spiritual garden of a, of a listener or a listener's companion or something like that. But I, I want to stress that it's not to say that miracles can't happen, that faith itself is not a powerful force because uh, Jesus says in Matthew seventeen twenty, because of your little faith, he told them for truly, I tell you, if you have faith, the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So it's not like we are not capable of incredible things because we are through God. But those incredible things have to be in God's will. And for our part, they need to be specifically in service of our work for God. We can't buy a lottery ticket, decide that, okay, we're going to give 20% of the winnings to the church and not just 10 and say, well, it's definitely God's will that I win then. But faith is, is a powerful and important thing. That's like creating a bargain with God. You know, it's like, if yeah. you give me this, then I'll give you this. And mm -hmm. we, 
we see what happens with bargains with God. I mean, <laughs> I was like, I'm sovereign yeah. over that. I don't need you to be making bargains with me. <laughs> but there's a lot of people whose faith hinges on that, you know, where they'll say, you know, if, if you'll save my dad from this cancer, I'll dedicate my, you know, and I, I think it was even, what was it, Hannah, who who dedicated Samuel, you know, if you give me a baby, I'll, yeah. I'll dedicate him to the temple, you know. So sometimes God th- comes through on those bargains, but only when they fit into his purpose, you know. What, yeah, his will it's already. Uh, for Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. He only became a monk because he got caught in a lightning storm and he begged God to keep him safe from the lightning and he would become a monk or a priest. priest. Yeah. yeah. And he did. <laughs> yeah. And it led to, oh, you know, a couple thousand years or 1,500 years of incredible change. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in Psalm 104, 7 through 9, it says, At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place where you established for them. You set the boundary they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. And that really just speaks to the indomitable will of God. And no matter how much we want something, if it's in opposition to God's will, it's not going to happen. Now, we do a lot of things, me more than others, I feel like, that God doesn't want us to do. But even doing them, it is part of his will because it's all going to serve his purpose. And it's all going to work in our favor if we love God. But it all hinges around God and the way the movies just seem to give the hero or the heroine the supernatural will to affect change is a bit of a fairy tale. Yeah, and it is interesting because if you go back and watch the documentary Dark Horse, in which they show not all, but almost every race that, that Dream Alliance runs in, you'll find out that, you know, the recreations of the races that they put in in the Dream Horse, none of them were actually run that way. Like his very first race, they showed him, you know, not starting at the beginning and then running from way in the back and, and making it all the way up to fourth before, you know, they crossed the finish line. And I remember turning to the lady I went to see the movie with and saying, you know, if he had started with the rest of the horses, he would have won the race, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't start, you know, they, they wanted this drama in there, you know, that, you know, he was always coming from behind. But in reality, he was usually in the, the crowd. He was usually in the, the main bunch of the horses. And the few times that he did win, it was either, especially the Welsh National, which was the, the one that went international in news, you know, that he won this mm-hmm. big, big Welsh race. And that was his comeback, you know, from injury. He won that race because the leaders made a mistake over one of the jumps. So he probably would not have won the race, except he was well positioned for when the other horse fumbled over a jump and lost stride. Then he was able to surge to the front. In fact, in the dark horse, the assistant trainer that was interviewed quite a bit said that Dream Alliance was not a fast horse. And he he had a lot of will and he would do what you told him to do, but he was not the fastest horse out there. And so, you know, to kind of couch it in the terms of, you know, the, in the way, in the way in the race, it's like they were willing him to the front and all this stuff. It was just, you know, if you believe in chance, it was, it was just things just happened by chance, you know? Yeah. But God ordains everything, even something as frivolous as horse racing. So, Mm-hmm. And I think that that, as much as I love horses, and when I was a young girl, I used to really be obsessed with horse racing. And, you know, I'd watch it, you know, I never betted on the horses or anything. I just like to watch the pretty horses run, you know, but um, <laughs> when I when I got older and realized what a nasty and horrible sport it is, it kind of changed my perspective because I did like it for the horses. And horse racing is all about the money. It's mm-hmm. breeding a horse that will win races that will, you know, win the big races so that the owners make the big money and to do it in such a way that they come from, you know, the betting odds are so that you make more money, you know, so it actually having a horse that is somewhat unpredictable 
you know, sometimes loses the races and sometimes wins the races actually makes the betters more money because, you know, if they, they can, better odds. the better, the odds are better, you know? Yeah. But it's all about making money. In fact, they, they brought this up in the movie, you know, that any other owner, when Dream Alliance, you know, sliced his tendon coming over one of the jumps, they would have just put him down on the track because of the insurance money. They brought that up in the movie. And it's like, you know, if you take him off the track and you and you end up putting him down anyway, you lose the insurance money. You have to put him down on the track to get the insurance payout. So it is. It's all about the money. That's they. Nobody cares about the horses. And that's one of yeah. the reasons that I kind of quit following it as a sport because it's like, you know, the horses that don't run well, they end up being sold by the pound for meat. And yeah. very few even of the ones that do well get nice retirements. You know, if they're studs, they might get retired to stud, but the geldings, they're worthless once they stop racing. They're worthless. They have no value. And if they don't win anything, if they never win anything, they never have any value and they just get rid of them. And that's the same thing of any of the racing and, you know, sport racing greyhounds. They That's why they have greyhound rescues, because so many of the greyhounds end up just being put down because they don't run well. And it's sad that that is the motivation for, for why people do things. But I'm going to yeah. get off my soapbox here because it, it does bug me. The final thing that I wanted to talk about, the final theme, was they really made a point in this movie and in the documentary. They, it, was, it was a point that was made in both that Jan and actually some of the other characters really found their identity through owning a racehorse that was doing well. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you this. It's actually a similar quote, one from the movie and the same quote that was actually said by Janet in the documentary. And in the movie Dream Horse, it was the other day at work, I spent two hours stacking 10 sweet corn. And all I could think about was, well, all my life, I've never been me. I've been Elsie's daughter, Dennis and Sasha's mother, or Daisy's wife. But watching you race, I'm Jan. And then in Dark Horse, the actual quote, and I suspect that this is the quote from this documentary is what they based the quote in the movie on. Mm -hmm. She said, all through my life, I've never actually been me. As a little girl, I was Kelly's daughter. When I started school, I was Trevor's sister. When I got married, I was Daisy's wife. And I wanted to make my mark, to prove it to myself more than to anybody else. I got married young, and I had my children young. And then as the children were growing up, you had to take a job that brought money in. I worked in a factory for 23 years. You know, nobody really wants to do that for a living. You do it for the money. So outside of that, any time that you got, you have to do something that takes you away from it. So this was her trying to find an identity for herself outside of the way the way she'd always seen herself. And yeah. yeah. I was thinking about that from a Christian perspective, and I was thinking there's no other verse that speaks to that more than Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As non-Christians, let's, let's start with an unsaved mm. perspective. Yeah. We are always struggling with who we are. That is, I think, as people... It's just in the very yeah. nature of being human, struggling with who we are. And it's built into our fabric to need to be something more. Yeah, and I and I think that comes from the broken relationship that sin has caused. I mean, we were created mm-hmm. to be in communion with God. He made us to to be a part of him, you know, and then sin drove a wedge in that and that has made us con- continually uncomfortable with who we are and we can seek our identity in all sorts of things but in reality poor jan you know dream alliance only ran for 10 years so who is she after dream alliance has stopped running did dream alliance make her herself or did the identity that she found in owning a racehorse was as ephemeral as any of the other identities that she has struggled with her whole life. You know, yeah, being the daughter of her father and being the, the sister of her brother and being the wife of her husband, the mother of her children. These are all stages yeah. in life that are ephemeral. They, they're they there and then they're not there. 
and she's she's done this specifically before too cuz she had won awards for pigeons, right? Right, racing pigeons and for dogs. And, and for dogs, whippets. And so it was just, you know, another stage, another ephemeral stage. And from what I understand, she's still trying to breed in the next Dream Alliance. You know, she's still breeding racehorses because she wants to win a gold cup. And Dream Alliance never mm. won a gold cup. He won a silver cup, but he never ran won a gold cup. So you know, the end of the documentary, she says, I'm going to keep trying until I get a gold cup on my cupboard. So hmm. she doesn't realize it, but she's still sunk in that identity crisis. And, you know, I was thinking about that. It's like, as Christians, the ultimate identity that we can possess is Christ's identity. And right. that is the the lasting identity. That's the one that doesn't get old or, you know, go away, you know, just it erases itself in the dust because all the other identities that we seek as people, we lose them. In Second Corinthians one seventeen, it says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come." And then uh, in Colossians three two through four, it says, "Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God." When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So I, I think that's a kind of a good way to, you know, wrap the movie up is that, you know, this is a true story about people who are struggling to escape the monotony of a life. And they found identity briefly as the owners temporarily, of a, yeah. temporarily as owners of a successful racehorse, which made them popular because it was an underdog story that went international, a comeback story that people loved to hear and it made them feel good. And they became, you know, sensations overnight because of it. But all of that is ephemeral. All of that blows away in the, in the wind because mm -hmm. they don't, they didn't put their faith in the right thing. And as Christians, we have to remember that our identity is in Christ our purpose is far more important than the monotony of everyday mm -hmm. life, that we have purpose and we have something to look forward to that is beyond the humdrum of living. Yeah. We're not doing it for ourselves. We're not investing ourselves, our souls into earthly things. We're giving our souls back to their original owner. Right. Exactly. You know, and, I'm not against loving animals. I have a cat. I love animals. If I could afford it, I'd have a horse because I absolutely adore horses. I've been horse crazy mm. my whole life. And I think horses will be in heaven because it says that Christ will return riding on a white horse. So they have to be in heaven. <laughs> he's he's got to have a stable with the yeah, couple. Of them, <laughs> there's got to be a stable I can go work in in heaven because there's horses. <laughs> but in the end, you know, we have to always be putting – the monotony of our daily life in perspective with the purpose and the hope that we have of eternity. And yeah. our purpose as Christians is to be bringing souls into the kingdom. And we have to always be putting that above all else. Yep. Well, all of that said and done. All that out of a horse race movie. Yeah. But, you know, the interesting thing is, is, you know, next month we're going to return to our, our superhero binge because, we have to go see Black Widow. I mean, we have to. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. So phase four, baby. Yeah, it's a given. We've been they've been putting this movie off for months. So, <laughs> so you know, we'll get we'll get back to you know the fun hero themes that we keep you know reiterating over and over again. But it was kind of fun to break out of that mold and talk about something yeah. slightly different. Yeah, the superhero movies are. I obviously I really enjoy them. Yeah, <laughs> but it is it is nice to to get to a normal <laughs> normal movie with with real emotional baggage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as we always say, if you want to connect with us about this movie or about any movies, we do recommend that you comment on the show notes, which will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 117. You can share your feedback also by calling us at 513-818-2959 and leaving a voicemail. You can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com or... What we would really like you to do is come join our Facebook page, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community or just looking for us on Facebook. I think mm -hmm. we're pretty easy to find. 
Yeah. We also uh, are listener supported. So if you would like to support us on Patreon, you can go do so by going to patreon.com slash are you just watching? We want to thank our current patrons, Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman, who have been generously supporting us monthly. You could also donate by going to PayPal, to our PayPal account. It's paypal.com slash paypalme slash AYJW. That is how you can give to us through PayPal. Mm. And then, of course, we would love you to subscribe, rate, and review our podcasts wherever you get podcasts. If it's through Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Amazon Podcasts or however you're subscribed, we do encourage you to subscribe and review us so that we get some reviews out there. The reviews kind of just, you know, help people know that we're out there. And we would love for you to share our episodes on Facebook or Instagram or any of the other places that you uh, interact with your communities so that you can bring new listeners to us. We really appreciate that. But if you're still here and still listening, thank you so much for listening. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.